0: introduction of, of our year-long study on the Bible, and next week, uh, and he'll, he'll probably make comment on this, next week we'll delve into um, the Torah, and uh, is that Zev? Yes. And Zev will be here, and I'm sure, as you know, um, he's a wonderful mind, a great teacher, almost as good as Michael. <laughs> I feel, I feel somewhat silly because this year we only have one topic, so I don't have a lot to announce. So luckily you don't have to listen to me drone on. The Lord be with you. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day and for this special precious time where we can come together and ponder the ways that you have inspired your word and that you continue to inspire your word in our hearts today be with us may your spirit be with us be upon us open our eyes open our hearts to receive what you want to show us what you want us to take away today and as we start uh, delving into your scripture systematically next week god let us hold on to all the things that we have learned above all let us hold on to you And uh, let us hold on to the thanksgiving that we have, that you gave us your word, that we could know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so our last, as Dan just said a few moments ago, our last class in the introduction here is... uh, getting getting the big picture of the bible particularly in talking about the text of the bible so this is a one of the uh, books that i used a lot for the preparation in this class the text of the new testament by bruce metzger and bart Ehrman. so i want to just look at because we in the beginning of every class we look at a different picture of the bible or uh something different here and this is just a spectacular spectacular illumination of uh in latin Of the very first page of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the word. Well, in the Latin here, this is in principio erat verbum. In principio erat, right? In the beginning was the word. And so we ponder that, right? What does the word mean? Does the word mean scripture? Does the word mean Jesus? What does the word mean? Right? So that is kind of what we're getting after the whole class. But uh, I want to. Start off with a a different question here. I have, if you've been wondering, you saw saw these books up here, you're probably thinking, what is going on here? Uh, Which of these Bibles is the Bible? Okay, so let's walk through it. Maybe, which one? You know, that actually isn't up here, not quite yet. We've got the New King James. Is that good enough, Joe? The New King James, will you take it? No, boo, hiss, heresy, okay. So you've got uh, die gute Nachricht, right? This is the German Bible. You have the, a Turkish Bible, another German one, just by chance. You've got the Message, the Good News Bible, la Bible, the French Bible. Uh, this is uh, my grandmother's own new King James. Karen, maybe, I don't know. Oh, oh, here we go, we've got some Hebrew We've got some Japanese. We've got the the Greek new the Greek New Testament, mind you. Uh here we have Bulgarian and here we have Nepali. Okay, so which of these Let's come back to the question. Which of these is the Bible? Who's got the answer? Who can tell me? All of, the above. all of the above. Okay. We didn't have enough room to put on more translations. Sorry if your favorite was left off. So <clears throat> I know it's a funny exercise to do, but to ponder that question of which Bible is the Bible starts to reveal that we do have preferences, right? As Pastor Dave sometimes jokes from the pulpit, he'll say, "Well, this is the Bible Jesus read from the NRSV, right?" Um, and so we have our preferences. We have the translations that we grew up with. Maybe our grandparents or parents taught to us. So there are certain translations we like, but. In considering which Bible is the Bible, there are some things we've got to think about. We've got to think about language. So is this in the original language? So in the Greek or in the Hebrew? And if those were the case, you'd be going here. But how many people here speak or read uh, Hebrew or Greek? A little bit? Okay. Um, But so not many, not not most of you. So the argument is, uh, unless you can read those ancient languages, you can't read the Bible. If you were to say... Well, these together are the Bible. Well, that's problematic because we can't do that. Now, Islam, Islam actually holds the Quran is only the Quran in Arabic. Whenever it's translated out of the original language, it's no longer the Quran, it's a translation, right? The most strict orthodox uh, uh, adherence to Islam would say that, right? We don't say that. King James Version, the 1611 version only, some would say that that is the only one that preserves the Bible correctly, but then we have some issues there. Uh, What about those other people who don't speak uh, Elizabethan English or who can't understand it, and what about all those who came for 1600 years prior to the King James Version of the Bible? What do we do? Did they not have the Bible yet? they they had to wait fifteen hundred years, sixteen hundred years for a good translation. The King James Version. what do we do? Or we could say, "Oh no, the living Bible, the message these are the ones these are this is the Bible, none of the rest and the argument is only the most readable modern translations come uh, can contain the Bible and 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 come through and that's problematic as well, because you're discounting all those who've gone before, right? Um, now, I don't know anybody who makes this, this argument, but, uh, but there is something to be said about it. Something interesting about it. Now, here, we also have to consider the methods of translation. How do we get this Bible, right? So, is it literal or is it paraphrased? Do you understand it, and it it's makes sense meaning-wise to you? That's probably a paraphrase. If it's very wooden and literal, and you're like, I don't really get what they're getting after, is that more of the Bible? And sometimes we have to admit it is difficult to translate certain phrases or idioms from Scripture uh, to other languages or to other cultures, such as the idea of a lamb. Uh, I've heard the story that Wycliffe Bible translators in some areas in, in Asia, actually, where they, they don't know what a lamb is, they actually keep a lamb there at the translation center so they can say, okay, Jesus is our shepherd, this is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I'm a lamb, this is what a lamb is. That's, not a, that's a hard concept to translate. So for them, what do you do? Do you translate the Bible for them so that they understand it? Or do you preserve something that is not understandable? Right? Uh, another idea is snow, right? There are certain climates all over the world that don't have snow. So my sins were washed as white as snow? Well, how white is snow? I've never seen snow. But it wouldn't for us who live in the north, right? It's it's pretty easy to say, oh yeah, white as snow. My whole yard is covered with snow, my house, you can't see anything. It's just it's white out there. Well, sin is like sin has been washed as white and and clean as that or what about kidneys right so we talk about the heart you know my heart is overflowing with love for my beautiful wife right here right but we all know that the heart is not actually a center of emotion we talk like that but no scientist is going to say oh there's actually neurons right there in your heart that actually make that you think from your heart or you have emotions." We understand it culturally as a center of emotion, but that's not quite it. In the Hebrew um, language, they didn't think about the heart that way. They thought about the kidneys that way. They thought the kidneys were the center of emotion, which we, you may say, well, that's weird, but it's about as weird as saying that your heart is the center of your emotion, right? So what do you do when you come to these words in the Hebrew Bible? Do you translate it literally? Well, then it doesn't make any sense. Or do you do you, accom- do you do you paraphrase it or, or change it so that it is understandable? So when we're presented with all these different versions of the Bible, um, I think that this, these ideas can start to challenge our idea of biblical inspiration. So, if the words themselves, down to each, every, all the way down to the bottom, right? That macro to micro, if the words themselves individually are inspired what do we need to do we need to just like the muslims we need to throw out every translation and go back to the original languages obviously we're not going to do that Uh, but just as we understand um we understand jesus came to us god came to us in flesh incarnate right Jesus came to us in human flesh. Why? So that we could know God, and God could know us. So also, I believe that there is the incarnation of Scripture, and I'm not alone in this. This isn't my novel idea, right? I'm drawing from a lot of different people here, um, but that the Holy Spirit brings the word of Scripture alive in all these languages and all these translations, it's not dependent upon the words themselves, it's dependent upon the Spirit continuing to inspire, not just the words, but inspire our hearts. Right? Okay. So today we're going to focus in on something uh, called textual transmission and textual criticism by criticism i don't mean well that's a bad thing and and i'm not going to criticize criticism is uh the greek word uh it comes from judging right it's all about judging which is better which is worse how do we look at a text uh and so let's just jump right in the printing press right the printing press was an important um invention Not just for the dissemination of printed materials in general, but especially for the Bible. Most people before the printing press probably didn't have the full copy of the Bible in their homes, right? But the printing press started that process whereby people could have it. Before the printing press, everything was written by hand. So when the printing press came along, things could be mass-produced. And this cut down on the number of errors, right? Because by hand, you're, when you transcribe something or write something by hand, there's bound to be some errors. Printing press, hopefully, is going to fix all that. There's never going to be any errors again when the printing press comes along. Unfortunately, that wasn't quite the case. Because you get you get books like, uh, or you get copies of the Bible, like the Judas Bible from 1613, where it's, uh, this Bible has Judas, not Jesus, praying to say, sit ye here while I go yonder. right? And you can see, if you look closely, this was the original, and then somebody came over and put like a little post-it or like a little sticky st- sticker over it because it said Judas and it said Jesus, and they had to change it because they wanted to still sell them, right? Everything else was right, all 66 books and, and all the words of the, every except this one word in the one Bible, right? Or, this is my favorite, the Sin-On Bible. Instead of Sin-No-More, it said Sin-On-More, Or that was from 1716. Or here's the wicked, adulterous, or sinner's Bible from 1631, where if you look here closely, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt commit adultery. (laughs) What happened? The word not got left off. That's, Okay. What's funny is, uh, maybe not funny, but an interesting end to this story, is that these printers were actually fined because they printed it wrong. It's a very different era, right? Um, and there were people who were c- keeping checks on the fake news. But, uh, so printers were fined 300 pounds, and almost all of the copies were re- uh, co- uh, collected thereafter, with only 11 known to exist today. Okay, so that's, those are some of the challenges after the printing press. But now we've got to consider what happened before the printing press. Now, before the printing press, we know everything was copied then sometimes translated into other languages as well, everything was done by hand. So if we have those issues with the printing press, we can't say, oh, everything before that was perfect. It was even a little more complicated, right? We have several thousand ancient copies of the books, and upon comparison of those copies, they're not exactly the same. And so we have to engage in textual criticism. And as I said a moment ago, criticism is not saying this is a bad Bible. It's it's judging among these differing witnesses to the scripture, which is better than the other. So the the study of textual criticism uh, is a study of copies of any written document whose original, that is the autograph, the idea being that when somebody was finished writing a letter or writing a gospel, they would have probably signed it, right? Um, Textual criticism is important because the original is unknown or non-existent, and it's for the primary purpose of determining the wording of that original. Why do we have to do this? Because the autographs no longer exist. We We cannot say, we have gospel of John, this is in his own handwriting. We don't have that we don't have any of the epistles we don't have any of the we have no piece of scripture in the original hand in which it was written as far as we know now what is uh what i found to be comforting in that uh in in the reading i've done is uh is you consider you know you're not supposed to touch ancient manuscripts with your hands why because the oils in your hands are going to rub, they're going to ruin it. They're going to destroy the document. And lots of scholars say, we don't have those autographs because they were already treasured and prized, and nobody thought to, that we're in a museum, we need to keep this forever. They thought, I want to touch that Gospel of John. I want to hold on to the actual letter that Paul sent me. Well, after time, more and more people did that, and they wore away. But before they did, right, uh, people copied them down. We joked a few weeks ago, somebody read this letter and said, oh, I want to copy, let me copy that down and take that back home with me, right? That kind of thing is going on. And um, we've already talked about there are still differences, there are differences among the copies, and if we have those originals, the um, process of textual criticism would not be necessary. Okay. As of 2003, looking at Greek manuscripts, we have about 6,000. Now, some of these are complete versions of the New Testament. Some of these are simple scraps of papyri that are, that are very small, containing a few words, right? So we have the whole gamut. So a papyri, minuscule manuscripts, minuscule, and lectionary uh, manuscripts, which we'll look, at, we'll look at each of these in turn. First, we have uh, papyrus, the plural form being papyri, and here is what a papyrus uh, would look like. This is the oldest textual evidence. This is probably what the Gospels would have been written on, the epistles, all of the letters in that early period. This was the most prevalent material. Um, But it also happens to be the most fragile, and uh, that's why these are often the most fragmentary. Now, over here, this is called P52. This is Papyrus 52, which contains a few fragments of John's Gospel. And this comes, uh, comes to us from probably the year 100 to 150 A.D. Or, BC, or or C.E. And this is the oldest copy of any portion of the New Testament known to exist today. But what's interesting, where was this found? This was found in Egypt, Was the gospel written in Egypt? It was not written in Egypt. This was in a provincial town, not in a big city, in a provincial town along the Nile and dates from, as I said, 100 to 150 A.D. And P52 proves that this gospel was already by this point widely disseminated, right? This is a good thing because it means that some people prized this from the beginning, copied it, copied it, and said, whoa, we want a copy of that all the way over here. It has been disseminated throughout uh, the the Middle East already. And we think that John composed it in Ephesus, which is about modern-day Turkey. So in the course of just a few decades, from the time of its writing to the time of it showing up here, and we don't know if this is how early this is, right? This could be um, right from the very autograph, or it could be later. We're just not sure. So talking then about mayaskul manuscripts, if you don't know, uh, mayaskul just means uppercase, right, in uh, capital letters. So Codex Sinaiticus, which we've talked about uh, a few weeks ago, um, this is the only known copy of the New Testament from this, uh, in mayuscule script, right? The only known complete copy of the New Testament in mayuscule script in the Greek. Uh, What's also interesting is it uh, also contains the epistle of Barnabas and the shepherd of Hermas, which, of course, we've talked about a few weeks ago, we don't consider those canonical. It was only discovered in the mid-19th century, and it's called Sinaiticus because it was found on Sinai, right? There is St. Catherine's Monastery, uh, and there was uh, a whole host of folks, mostly it's, it's attributed to Tischendorf, but who was there and someone putting, putting paper into a fire and said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are those? That looks like it's, it's a biblical manuscript. Well, they had so many of them. They didn't know what to do with them. They started pitching them not thinking they were worth anything. Well, then they, they came across this. And they said, oh, stop burning this stuff. Let me, I'm, I will pay you for that. I'll give you wood if you want, right? So what do we notice here when we look at this document? Just visually. Obviously, we're not reading the Greek, but what do we visually notice about the page? Say again, Lori. Oh, no spaces, no punctuation. Actually, we'll get a little closer here. There's very little, there's a few markings here and there, but no spaces, no punctuation. There it also, it's four columns, right? Straight, clear, neat, maybe even, right? If I could, if we could all read Greek, we could probably figure out what this says pretty quickly right pretty crisp and clear but then you get these minuscule manuscripts and these are really important when we moved from minuscule to minuscule manuscripts it became really important um, because minuscule just being bigger by themselves meant that uh, it was it took longer it took up more paper right and so a person of limited means could only probably have a few copies of a few books right we're so lucky that we have the scriptures bound between two covers today right one bound copy back in this era still there's not necess- we still don't necessarily have that you if if you can't afford the whole thing you may just have a few gospels a few letters right um but when we move to minuscule writing uh, it was it was smaller took up less space, and it was a little more um, messy and cursive, as we'll see in a moment here, and that meant that it was cheaper as well. So that was an important step in the transmission and dissemination. Um, and within this minuscule tradition, we're going to look at one uh, uh, manuscript from Family 13, which is also known as the Farrar group by the person who discovered this. It's noteworthy because these manuscripts have that pericope de adultera, which is normally in... Uh, John, actually, over in the Gospel of Luke. Again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. We'll look at it in another second here, uh, but this is that that story where uh, you know the woman uh, caught in adultery is brought before Jesus, and Jesus says, "He who's without sin." Okay, good. We're awake. So um, we talked about it a few weeks ago that was not in, that was not original to John's Gospel. Um. Scholars have found, copy, even the Codex Sinaiticus doesn't have that, this, this passage, right? And here is another uh, manuscript that doesn't have it in John at all. It has it in Luke. And so, we talked about a few weeks ago, and I'll just rehash a little bit of that conversation, uh, that we talked about that just because it wasn't there doesn't mean it didn't happen. It could have been somebody said, oh, John come on, you missed my favorite story of Jesus. You told all the, yeah, all the good ones. But, but do you miss this one? This was, this was my favorite, one of my favorites. You left it out. So in the transmission st- process, somebody could have come behind and said, oh, it, it happened here. John forgot it. He can be forgiven. But we need to have this story, right? So it's not a question of if it happened or not. It's just, was it in the text originally or not? So here is one of those minuscule so, what do we notice here? Just shout it out. Smeared? Smeared. Messy. Messy? Did I hear something over there? No punctuation. Very little punctuation. Yeah, no, no punctuation. Not many spaces. Anything else? You also start to get some coloring here. There's, if you can't see, there's a little bit of red here on the page as well. So it's messier, but as we said, minuscules were important because they were smaller, they were quicker to make, so they were cheaper. Uh, for our sake, I put it into actual Greek, but uh, again, it's all Greek to me, right? So, Debbie. The Torah? Yep. The Greek is left to right. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. So... Uh, here is that um group, this is uh, Manuscript 788, so kai pas halaos, right, um, spaced strangely at some points here, but right here, let's take that away, here we're still in the Gospel of Luke, 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 whoop, kai eporethe, what, you're now in John, and then later on, you jump back to Luke, right? So this is that Pericope de Dolterra that we're talking about that, for some reason, somebody thought, no, we sh- it shouldn't be in John, it should be over in Luke. So that is one of the biggest passages that's, I think, one of the only passages that has done that, that has flipped around and moved like that, um, and that is what clues scholars into say, hold on a second, something's going on here. So let's now talk about some methods of copying. In the earliest period, you would sit in a scriptoria, or scriptorium, there would be scriptoria as a plural, um, and several trained scribes, some Christian, some non-Christian, they would all sit there uh, with parchment, pen, and an inkwell, right? And they would copy the book that was being reproduced by the whole group, right? It wasn't just one person in a room at the earliest stage. It was a group of people copying the same book, and there would be someone at the lectern, right? A lector who would be reading through the book very slowly so that you can all keep up with your handwriting, with your writing it down, right? So that was the earliest days, and this is when it became a formalized thing. Right? We talked about how at some point, maybe somebody over in Ephesus said, well, I love that, that letter that Paul wrote to, to Philip, the folks in Philippi. I'm going to copy that. And so there could be, there is some of that going on, even before that, the scriptoria. But what, is, what becomes problematic when it becomes systematized is that if I'm just reading it to you, I don't know about you, I'm a terrible listener, I I love I watch all sub, all TV with subtitles. I can hear it, but I I understand it much better when I see the words. If I don't um if I don't see the words, it's a little difficult to understand. Um so homonyms might be difficult, especially maybe if you're not in the church, if you're a non-Christian and you don't no, these aren't your your books these aren't what you're using on a week-to-week basis to worship to know god in worship you're not you're not using these these are these might as well you might as well be copying down the quran or some some books from from hinduism right we don't know um and so some words that may not be understood or maybe a little ambiguous especially homonyms are going to be problematic but then we moved on to uh, just copying things by eye and hand, right? So this is later in the Byzantine period. There would be monasteries where you would sit in a whole room, and you would all probably stand or sit at a lectern, and you'd have a copy of the book, and you'd have the parchment and the pen and the inkwell, and you would continually write and write and write. And... It's silly to do this, but it's helpful to, to understand why differences and what are called variants emerged. Because as you do this, you're, there's, there's a process. You're reading to yourself, right? I'm looking at the Bible and you're reading it. And in this era, probably everyone is still reading aloud, right? Augustine, who was about the fourth century, people made fun of him because he didn't read out loud. What? everyone would read out loud back in that era it's it was strange that he didn't and so people still in this era of uh, copying by hand and eye were probably reading to themselves aloud then they had to retain that material in their memory then they had to dictate that to their cell to themselves right and then they had to actually with their hand copy those words that were in their memory that were hopefully on that page Here we have Romans 5, 1 in Codex Sinaiticus, which we looked at, right, in the majuscule script, uh, where this probably, I'm not actually sure exactly if this belongs in the scriptoria era, but my guess is it does, because this says ex-omen, and uh, you could spell that two different ways. You could spell it with uh, an omega or an omicron. Well, they're pronounced about the same, but they have different meanings. Let us have peace, or we have peace. Well, what's great here is, uh, like, in the, I, I really do think it belonged to this earliest period. Um, the, the copyist wrote it down, and then somebody came after the corrector. And he, you see this little dot right above this? He said, no, no, this is what it should be. Ex-omen, right? Forget about that letter. But he didn't cross it out, because that wouldn't look nice, right? Um, also we need to think about re-inking. If we in- insert into this, this copy process, at some point your ink is going to run out. So you've got to re-ink. That will h- adds a whole nother, uh, even a second to the process, and allows there to be m- some more issues. So here is, uh, it's kind of hard to see in this lighting, but that's okay. So here is some re-inking visible in Mark ch- uh, chapter 3 of Manuscript 69. You can see that His pen started to run out. Oh, and he re-inked, right? So as we criticize, as we judge, we have to weigh these differences, weighing the discrepancies. So there are four primary uh, categories. Viable, but not meaningful. Meaningful, but not viable. And neither meaningful nor viable. Uh, And 99% are in here, and then you got less than one percent and meaningful and viable. So what? Is meaningful obviously changes the meaning of the text. Viable means it has a sufficient pedigree to perhaps, potentially, maybe represent the wording of the original, right? So only. So what this is saying is ninety over ninety nine percent of the scriptures we can trust is probably actually being original, but but then that little one percent it starts to get a little interesting. Before we go there, uh, viable but not meaningful, we probably think this was original or there could have been some challenges, but it doesn't really tell us anything differently. Spelling, spelling word, spelling. Um, As we can even attest in English, uh, a few centuries ago, spelling was still kind of in flux in the English language. Things weren't standardized as they are today, right? I always, uh, the, the thing about the word bread, why does it have an A in it? I still don't know. But Noah Webster said, that's silly. Let's try to change it. So he took out the A. It didn't stick. But a few other th- changes, he said, program, M-E on the, wor- the end. Well, we took it, but the Brits, Brits still like that M-E on the word program. But thanks to Noah Webster, we cut that off, right? So spelling even just a few hundred years ago in English was still in flux. Now go back to millennia. Spelling things are in flux. It's not a big difference, not a big problem, right? John, Alanis, Alanis, one ends or two, one end or two. We have three different spellings of John or Jonathan, right? You can, you can come up with all these different things. Not a big problem. And then you get into questions of word order. Um, John loves Mary. You can say that uh, at least eight ways in Greek. They all mean the same thing. You're not f- suddenly saying Mary loves John and oh. She does love him back? Right. This is not that problem, right? It, they all say John loves Mary. So if there's a variation on this, it doesn't change the meaning. Now, there's, there are some that are meaningful, that change the meaning, but probably are not uh, viable. And we can pick this out pretty clearly, right? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect onion... What? you know that's not right. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what was said. But if it were, wow, we're, this is just a recipe, folks. We're not forming a country here. We're, we're, this, is, this is the beginning of a recipe, and you just don't know it. right? It's meaningful if it were true, if it were viable, but it's probably not. We're going to skip that one. And this is, this is the third category, meaning, the, the final category, meaningful and viable. This is where it starts to get a little more interesting. Romans chapter 8, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So most manuscripts have me instead of you here, and some have us instead of you. We're not really sure, but it does change the meaning. Who... Who, is set, who has been set free? Is it me? Is it you? Is it us? Who has been set free? It changes the meaning, even slightly. Now this isn't, we're not talking about something that's changing the whole of our theology here. But again, if we're concerned about inspiration of Scripture, we're concerned about the words on the page. What do we do when there are these kind of challenges? Or over in uh, Philippians 1.14, It says, and most of the brothers and sisters, now more than ever, dare to speak the word fearlessly. Some say of God, the word of God. Some say the word of the Lord. Some say just fearlessly. Is it the word? Are they speaking words of God? Divine words? Or are they just speaking their own words? It's a a change in meaning, and we're not sure what to do with it. So, Uh, this is, when you have your Bibles, right, this is when it gets interesting, and it says other ancient authorities might say, right, this is where you start to get the clue that something more is going on here. And this is why I wanted to talk about this in particular today, because I think um, if you open up those Bibles and see that, you may start to question that this is reliable at all. My hope is even if we're talking about this in the different manuscripts, my hope is at the end of this, you'll say, this is reliable. We can rely on this. And also, especially in those Bibles that say other manuscripts or other ancient witnesses have, they're showing you that this isn't as clear cut, but it is reliable. So, we talked about a little before, there are some challenges inherent to the Hebrew Bible, what we also call the Old Testament. It's written without vowels, right? For native speakers, this is no problem, but knowledge of Hebrew at some point started to wane, and people started not being able to read the Hebrew Bible. So, along came these folks called the Mazarites, um, who would add vowel points to them. To, to fill it out, to make sure that the people who came later would be able to read and understand the scriptures, but they gave vowels based on their understanding. And by this point, knowledge of Hebrew was already starting to wane, and that's one of the reasons that they were adding these vowel points in the first place. So some modern scholars, Jewish, Christian alike, would say, maybe the Masoretes got it wrong there. Maybe they got it wrong there. Instead, we need to move this space over here and we need to change this vowel to this vowel and that changes the meaning of some texts we've talked also before about uh challenges inherent to the greek bible uh what's called scriptio continua uh, which is what laurie had pointed out that we looked at the greek and there are no spaces what uh mark ten forty according to most editors Jesus says but it is for those who for whom it has been prepared well if you take out this space here it can also be read it has been prepared for others this is one of those meaningful differences now this isn't this isn't uh, a textual this isn't a textual transmission or text criticism thing this is how do we what do we do with this we have this now what does it mean uh, but there's also lack of punctuation. Where does a quotation start and where does a quotation end? So John 3.16, for God so loved the world, only begotten Son, that whosoever believe, whosoever, right? King James Version, that's how I learned it. Right. We all know that by heart. Who said that? Who said it? Who said John 3.16? Didn't Eva have an answer? No. She said she said it. Okay. We don't know. We don't know, and the reason we don't know is because the quotation mark, there's no quotation marks here. Uh, Jesus is in a conversation with Nicodemus, but at a certain point, the conversation seems to end, and then it's the gospel writer's uh, uh, commentary on the conversation. Some people say that it, you should stop at the, the quotation in verse 15. Some say, oh no, that's all Jesus, all the way down to, to verse 21 makes a big difference we're putting five verses worth of words into jesus's mouth if we do one or the other right so what do we do with it again this is not a text transmission this is a this is a, just a just a general challenge that we just need to be made aware of okay moving to um talking about those cop the copying uh of manuscripts we have six categories of unintentional errors right so we talked about the process of copying and how we needed to re-ink and there are all sorts of uh unintentional things right caused by sight hearing memory judgment fatigue carelessness they would probably spend eight ten twelve right they would spend the whole day copying 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 i can barely sit and copy and actually do handwriting for like you know a half hour hour before my hand starts to seize up right so, you spend all day. That is your only job. You're going you're gonna to have some errors on occasion. Uh, with confusion of errors, uh, which is similar endings and met- metathesis. So, there's confusion of letters, right? Here are different letters in Hebrew. Here's a kaf, here's a bait, noon and a gimel, resh and a dalet, right? That little corner. You see how it juts out like that? Such a little, little difference, but it can change the whole word, right? A he and a chet, and a vav and a nun, sofit, right? These are all different letters. So it's no wonder if I'm writing in cursive, I'm writing quickly, or the person before me wrote quickly, there can be some issues. Uh, such as here in the Greek, though, we get to First Timothy 3.16, uh, and we think it probably will like this in the original but somebody said, oh, they actually meant that that should be uh, this other one. And the difference is, God was revealed in the flesh, or who was revealed in flesh? And you can see somebody here, the corrector said, oh, oh what did you do? And we actually are not, I'm not sure which is actually more correct. I'm not sure why it did that. That's funny. Uh, there's also ditography, which is a, a mistaken repetition of a letter word or phrase by a copyist why did it do that haplography the inadvertent admission of a repeated letter right or a word so everyone who denies the son neither has the father has the father somebody started uh started to omit words and went back and um problematic okay okay moving on to intentional errors because we're getting short on time here Sometimes people said, oh, if that's the way they used to spell it. That is not the way we spell it anymore, right? So it would be like we're copying a text from 400 years ago, and we're like, nobody spells program with it, M-E, anymore. Let's cut it off, right? But are you preserving the original text, or are you updating it, right? Some people updated it to make it conform to better spelling or to better grammar, right? Grammar has changed in a few hundred years here as well. Um, harmonizations, correcting against discrepancies. Mark 1, uh, chapter 1, it says, as it is written in in Isaiah the prophet. But then what he actually says is a mixture of Malachi and Isaiah. So is Mark wrong? Some people said, well, we can't even suggest that he could be wrong here. Excuse me. We can't suggest he's going to be wrong here. So let's just say, as it is written in the prophet's. So we took out the word Isaiah. Same kind of thing here, uh, Mark chapter 2, 26, when Jesus says Abiathar was high priest during a particular time, um, in, we talked about in 1 Samuel 21, where according to, for 1 for, for Samuel, Ahimelech was the actual high priest. What do we do with that? Well, some copyists said, Jesus can't be wrong, so let's delete that phrase completely because they want to prevent the reader from saying, Jesus made a mistake. But again, there's, there's all these levels. Did Jesus say that, and was Jesus wrong? Well, that's a problem. Or was Mark wrong in writing it down? We don't know. The copyist said, we don't want to even allow for there to be a possible conclusion Jesus was wrong. Let's take out the problem passage here. Um, there's also explanatory glosses, right? In John chapter 5, one of my favorite stories, healing stories from the Gospels, then John, there's a man who's sick. Jesus comes to him heal his infirmity. And this is at the pool of Siloam. Oh, so who, who's been to the pool of Siloam? Anybody? Oh, okay, we have a few. Did you see the angel? You know the angel? You didn't see the angel. They didn't see the angel. <laughs> okay, so they don't know. So they don't know. Everyone knew, everyone where John was writing, knew what the pool of Siloam was. They knew what happened there. They knew the tradition behind it. But then the gospel started being dispersed and disseminated throughout different areas. And people said, what is the Pool of Siloam again? I don't remember. Well, in our, if it, that happened in our modern book, somebody would put a little footnote, a little gloss down there and say, this is what they mean, and this is what we need to know in order to understand this. But this is 1900 years ago. They didn't do that. They didn't have footnotes, right? So what do they do? They put it in the margins, and, sometime, and then it eventually got incorporated in. The tradition was um, that wait, the, they add, uh, waiting for the stirring up of the water, right? This healing, this man is coming to the pool expecting to be healed, and the tradition was that whoever got in the water first, when the angel came and stirred up the water, that person would be healed. Well, that's a very specific tradition, you don't know it the story may not make as much sense but this is not original to john it's an explanatory gloss we call it there's also some doctrinally motivated changes uh, there's a form of luke which refers to joseph as jesus's father can we see why that might be problematic um, but most greek manuscripts change the texts in various ways to remove this troublesome line and there's also addition of enriching material Um, so we talked about a few passages along the way we talked about this pericope del del terra the woman caught in adultery how that's not probably original it's moved around we can also look at the multiple endings of mark right there's a short ending a shorter ending and a long or short long and longer short shorter i don't know it's three different endings right and they all tell the resurrection story a little bit differently who was here to see um the the recitation of the gospel of mark in the spring was anyone here for that a few hands okay right so uh we all heard that beautiful recitation well where does he stop right that the whole time i'm thinking that i'm like where is he gonna stop where's he gonna stop because there are different endings and some people think, oh, well, the very last page of Mark got lost. We don't know what happened to it. So people came along later and said, we need to finish the story. Well, um, we don't think any of the three are original. Some of them are, have stronger traditions behind them. But what I love about this, and I, I love this, this Metzger book, because when we know that Mark is not responsible for those 12 verses, rather than saying well, who did it? This is not a reliable book. Instead of saying that, what we can do is we can reframe it and actually say these last 12 verses uh, were attached to the gospel before the church recognized the fourfold gospels as canon. So what that actually means is we don't just have four accounts of the resurrection. We have five. My, my, like my jaw fell to the floor. I was like, are you, what? Of course that's true. But when you think it's a problem, when you think, oh, it's not original, and you just throw it away as that, you're losing a lot. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? Let's not do that. Instead, in the original Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four, but then there's that little added story of the resurrection. And so really, we have five accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we're gonna skip, except take a look at, uh, for homework. Not gonna check it, right? You're not gonna grade. Um 1 Samuel 10, if you have the NRSV, um, you're, you're, it goes verse 27, and then you have a whole other paragraph. Uh, and this is because, I'm talking mostly about New Testament today, um, because i think that's what we most know and what's most accessible but here in the um, hebrew bible there's this whole paragraph that we don't have we didn't have a few hundred years ago but then the caves at qumran the dead sea scrolls were discovered and they said whoa we don't have this anywhere what happened to this we're not exactly sure but this is judged to be more original than what we had the Dead Sea Scrolls gave us a whole other paragraph. Now, this is, these are all like historical details, and, and people like, you are like, I don't know this story. But in context, this is important. In context, this makes sense. Without it, it's like, I don't follow... So if you're looking at this and say it doesn't make sense, it makes less sense without it there, right? Okay. So what are some of our takeaways? All translations... Right? Look, look up here. All translations. They all have some sort of interpretation. That's something that cannot be helped. And that's why having a good study Bible, or multiple translations of the Bible, if you're reading this book by Gordon Fee and, and uh, stewart uh, multiple translations can be helpful. And through this process of textual criticism, we can actually say that our, our Bible is pretty reliable pretty darn reliable, and as we discover more and more manuscripts, right, hopefully we find and uncover another cave here or there that has these old manuscripts, we can look at them, compare them, and say, oh, we were right, or, oh, there's something more to be discovered, right, and the more we get, the closer we get, the the more manuscripts we read and, and find, the closer we get to the autographs or the originals. I said again. I'll, I'll say, say. I said it once. I'll say again. These variants do not jeopardize any essential doctrine of the faith. Right. <clears throat> so you're not going to find any manuscript out there that questions Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Right. The very bedrock of our faith. These variants don't jeopardize any of the important stuff. Um, but what do they do? They tell us that Scripture was prized, even from the very beginning. That Scripture was read and reread, and hey, I want a copy of that. I need a copy of that, right? People would pay for folks to copy these things by hand because they treasured these words. Yeah, there were some problems. Yeah, there were some unintentional errors, even some intentional errors along the way. But the intentional errors were more because people cared, right? I don't want, I don't want Jesus to, I don't want anyone to think Jesus was wrong here. So I'm going to just, I'm going to smudge this up a little bit and we're going to say, he didn't say, he didn't mean that name. He said this name or should have said this name. Let's just take out that whole little thing. They cared. They weren't being malicious, right? Um, so by, by knowing some of these variants, we can also understand that, uh, that throughout history, different people cared, and these variant readings are not just chaff to be discarded, but they're valuable evidence for the history of early Christianity. You mean somebody had the Gospel of John uh, in, a, in a provincial town in Egypt off the Nile? Yes. That's the earliest copy of the Gospel of John we have. Isn't that amazing? And if there are differences there from all the others, we don't, say, we don't say, oh, well, then that's wrong. We say, wow, even here, at this early stage, Christianity has reached by the power of the Spirit, thanks be to God. But, but, if we hold to an inspiration of Scripture that every word down to every letter is inspired... This is where we may need to pray. We may need to ponder more. Because for me, this is what challenges traditional uh, discussion and understanding of inspiration. Because there are all these different variants. So, coming back to our question which Bible is the Bible? Well, if I had all those 6,000 papyri manuscripts, minuscule and minuscule, if I had all of them here, and I said, okay, which one is the Bible? I think you would probably say all of them. But there's differences. But all of them. So where does the inspiration lie? For me, the exact words don't matter as much as the message and the meaning, right? And this tells me the overall meaning is what is inspired, right? As a whole, Scripture points to God in Christ through the Holy Spirit, right? That we can come to know God, that God can come to know us in salvation, right? The Spirit is still speaking and still inspiring us to faith. Okay. I want, to, I want to read just one page. I've just started this wonderful, wonderful book. Rachel Held Evans uh, wrote a book called Inspired, One Woman's Journey Back to Loving the Bible. She's a phenomenal writer, and I just want to read a, just one page of, from the end of her introduction, where she reminds us of 2 Timothy 3.16, which declares that all scripture is inspired by God. Here, the writer has created a new word, theo-pneumatos, a combination of God and to breathe or to blow into. Inspiration is rooted in the image of divine breath, the eternal rhythm of inhale, exhale, gather, and release. And the book of John describes the breath of God as blowing wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. It is the invisible power of wind in the sails, the strange alchemy of air on embers. You, can't track, you couldn't track it down even if you tried. And then she says, which I just love, she says, inspiration is better than magic. For as any artist will tell you, true inspiration comes not to the lucky or to the charmed, but to the Faithful to the writer who shows up at her keyboard each morning, even when she's far too tired, to the guitarist whose fingers bleed after hours of practice, to the dancer who must first learn the traditional steps before she can freestyle with integrity, inspiration is not about some disembodied, ethereal voice dictating words or notes to a catatonic host. It's a collaborative process, a holy give and take a partnership between creator and creator. God is still breathing. The Bible is both inspired and inspiring. Our job is to ready the sails, gather the embers to discuss and to debate, and like the biblical character of Jacob, to wrestle with mystery until God gives us a blessing. If you are curious, you will never leave the text without learning something new. And if you are persistent, you just might leave inspired. Highly recommend. Another good book for your reading list. Okay, we, I'm just going to zoom through these pages just to see where we have gone. I'm not going to read through them a uh, great deal, right? This was week one. This is where we started, talking about the macro all the way down to the micro, we talked about how the Torah has seventy faces, Shivim Panim La Torah, how we can always turn the jewel another hair and learn something more. From week two, we talked about those three buckets from Adam Hamilton, right? How some scriptures always express God's heart character and are timeless. But then there's that third bucket. That's scriptures that may never have fully expressed the heart character and will of God. We did the whole arc of Bible history, right? I'm still I'm still taking naps from this. This one really tired me out, right? We just we did, ran the whole gamut here, and then we we did so we had some takeaways from week three about reading the Bible literally, not literally. And then we talked about um, progression of theologies: who to worship, whom to worship, how many gods. We talked about the progression of theology, right? I think yeah, that's it. So. What are some questions we have? We've got about, yeah, we've got about three minutes left. So what are some questions? Are we feeling overwhelmed? Are we feeling like, wow, I just learned a whole lot and I want to know more? Give me a book to read or I hope I never hear anyone talk about that again. (laughs) Jack. What we've been hearing is truly inspired. And I think all of us owe a great debt of gratitude to you, Michael, for Compiling, presenting, and allowing us to come to understand the Bible in the circumstances every day in which we read it. My personal experience is I can read a pastor one day, and the next day when I'm feeling bad, I will read the same passage, and it'll say something different to me. And I go home satisfied with a thank you that that's okay. Yeah, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jack. Anybody else? We've got some questions over here. I'm wondering how you want to cope with the people, uh, many Christians who believe in inerrancy uh, as a means of trying to cope with these problems. Oh, Do we have enough time? I don't know that we do. Um, yeah inerrancy right there are the three i's right Uh, inspired inerrant infallible that many evangelicals particularly hold to (sighs) maybe we'll leave that for uh, we have some sessions in december where pastor dave and i will both be back maybe we'll tackle the three i's then i think we've talked enough about inspired today but infallible and inerrant i think need more than just a one-minute answer so it's a good question. It just requires a lot longer of an answer. Anybody else? Nobody's, nobody's awake enough to ask questions. Is that it? Well, I have to say, this has been a lot of fun for me. I hope it has been uh, engaging and interesting for you. Um, and I hope that what you have learned here, you will take with you right i hope that this is not just an academic exercise i don't i don't want to just speak to you from the you know the tower of academia i i hope that this has been brought down to a level that is both engaging and inspiring but also you know something you can take with you and as you take these your scriptures home with you right as you read them i hope that some of these things are brought back to mind right my, reason, my reasons in talking about some of these topics are just to give you hooks on which to hang these scriptures, right? What is going on in this passage? Oh, it's, it's sarcasm. That's what that is, right? We talked about reading the Bible literally. It's sarcasm. That's okay. Or, oh, the, my mar, this, this marginal text says the other ancient scriptures say this, but what does that mean? No, the Bible is reliable. God is still God, and we are still being inspired. Amen. Thank you, Dan, for reminding me. We do have uh, some books here. This is "How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth." Uh, this is by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. A highly recommended book. Uh, if if this has been of interest to you and you want to know more, you say, "Wow, I really." They go they go in all these all all these different areas and more. Uh, highly highly recommended. It is, if uh, you want it, if you'll read it, it is free. We do ask a donation of $10 to offset the cost of these, and these will be available for uh, purchase after class. Now, next week, Zev will be starting a course on the Torah, right? So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So if it's been a little while, I would recommend, if you're coming next week, which I hope you do, because I'm excited, it's going to be a good class. I hope that you may just Open the Bible and start at the beginning this time. Rather than jumping all the way to Matthew, go back to Genesis. Some of my favorite stories are in the book of Genesis. And I hope that we can find to, find a way to love all of the scriptures again. And to, to make them come alive. So come next week as we do that. Before we depart and go on to worship, let us pray. Eternal God, we give you thanks again for the gift of this day, for your holy word that it is indeed trustworthy and reliable. We thank you, God, for those um, writers of the Gospels and the Epistles and the Tanakh, the Holy Hebrew Scriptures. We thank you for all of them. But too often we forget about all those who copied the Scriptures down, all of those faithful ones. And we give you thanks for each one of them, that they cared enough, that they loved you enough, to devote their lives to copying these holy words. And we thank you, God, for all those through the ages who have preserved and held to and held up and, and risked their lives for these very words that we could have them today. Let us never forget that all these words have been through to come into our hands today. May that inspire us again to treasure these words and to hide them in our hearts. We give this day all that we are, all that we say, all that we do, we give it over to you, almighty God, praying that you may bless it, you may bless us, and may we be a blessing back to you. We give, we give this day over to you in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you all. <coughs>